Today, we want to talk about the elephant in the room, right? What about really mean people? Or what about people that we might call them a name if we weren't here on a Sunday morning? Or what about people who they have just opposed us for our whole lives? What about enemies, right? Now, if you're familiar at all with Jesus, you know he has something to say about this. He says, love your enemy. And today, we want to just take a few minutes together and see if he really meant what he said. Spoiler alert, I think he did. And if so, how on earth do we go about trying to figure that out? Because this is where the rubber meets the road for many of us. This is deeply challenging. When I grew up, we moved into a neighborhood when I was in second grade, and it was a brand new neighborhood that was being built, and lots of families were moving in, and they either had kids who were my age or kids who were younger, except this one family who moved right next door to us, uh, and they had two older kids, uh, and, and one of them's name was Michael. So I was in elementary school, he was in high school, and his job was to terrorize the whole neighborhood. And he was, quite frankly, brilliant at it. He was a fantastic uh, terrorizer of the neighborhood. And so what he would do is he would take our dog sometimes, and he would take her, poor little Buffy, he would take her and he would roll her around in mud, and then he'd bring her to the door and ring the doorbell and say, oh, your, your dog got away. Or he would take the basketball from my house and deflate it and leave it in front of it. These are all deeply troubling things to a second and third grader. And his dad was even more terrifying than him. And this is normal, right? And so his dad, well, I lived, this is, I think this is the most terrifying thing of my childhood. I lived between two neighbors who were very difficult to, to live between as a second, third, fourth grade kid who just had no boundaries and didn't know how to live within the confines of my yard. And so on both sides, if I ever stepped over, if my balls ever went over, if my dog ever went over, there was you-know-what to pay. And so I remember trying to navigate the imaginary line between grass and grass, where the property actually ends and starts, so that I could live uh, free from the wrath. And so when I read this, my mind goes back to my childhood and says, did Jesus really want me to love people like Michael, who seemed like his sole purpose at that time? Now he's grown up. I'm sure he's a wonderful person. I'm a different person. But it seemed his whole purpose at that time was to make my life challenging. Does Jesus really want us to love those kind of people? In our world, we have all kinds of enemies, don't we? We have societal enemies, geopolitical types of enemies. We have enemies in some parts of the world simply by our geography, what it is like to live between India and Pakistan or North and South Korea or different places like that. We have enemies, can I get an amen, because of our politics. And in our world, if anyone would just take up the teaching of Jesus on this, perhaps politics could actually be something we could talk about in a normal way again. We have enemies at our jobs and our workplace, vocational enemies, right? We have, all of us, in some way, the Dwight Schrute from the office who is there simply to make our life challenging and difficult and to report to the boss anytime we do something the wrong way. And then we even have familial enemies sometimes, don't we? 
either from challenging upbringings or from disagreements that have lasted or have been blown up farther and more. And the truth of the matter is that enemies are both long-term realities and they're also temporary realities, aren't they? There are those people who oppose us. It seems like they're, they're working against us for, for long spans of time. And then there are times when someone comes against us in the moment and it surprises us. It's, it's out of the blue. It's out of nowhere. It can be a close family member or a close friend or someone at work who we respect and get along with. And so Jesus, when he's talking about this, he's really giving us a framework to process all of these realities. And of course, that much more, the core of what he's talking about is, what about people who oppose you because of your faith in Christ? Or what about people who make your life miserable because of your allegiance to King Jesus? And of course, he's setting his disciples up for their very existence going forward. And in all of these things, Jesus says something remarkable. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read Luke's account in a minute, but in Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus said. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemy. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, this is the way Jesus is speaking to the people who are listening to him. Hey, you were told to live this way. And I'm raising the bar because what I'm about to show you and demonstrate you through my work, ultimately the cross, the resurrection, is that the love of God is far grander, far deeper, far greater than you could have ever expected. It is a love that does not stop at those who love us back, but actually goes to the expanse of all of humanity, enemies included. So if you copy the scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This is how Luke records Jesus' statements. Luke 6, 27, but to you who are listening, I say, Jesus says that a lot, right? Those who have ears to hear or hear, he says, to those who are listening, because he knows that to hear and to listen are very different things. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus goes on, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. This is nuts. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children 
of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So Jesus is quite clearly calling us to love our enemies, but how? How on earth do we begin to engage in this reality? And what I would suggest to you that this text tells us is that there is a mindset that has to happen, a change in thinking, right? And then on the basis of that, a basis of of a new way of thinking, there are four kind of behavioral commands that Jesus gives us to engage in. So let's, let's walk through these really quick. The first mindset that he says is actually the word love. Now, anyone who is functioning in an adversarial way, coming against people, and listen, we need to pause and just clarify for a moment. I'm not talking about someone who is confronting you for good purpose, right? We're not talking about someone who is rebuking you for good purpose. We're not talking about someone who is speaking the truth in love to you, even though it's not something you want to hear. We're talking about someone who is opposing you simply to stop you or, quite frankly, for their own gain. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is talking about here. Anyone who is functioning in that kind of adversarial way is functioning out of or for the gain of power. They're either doing it to continue power or to achieve power. This is, and we get this all the way from Genesis 3, the beginning of the story of sin, sinful behavior is always about achieving power or holding on to power. It's why sin is oftentimes called rebellion, because we're rebelling against God's authority over us. So if, if evil or adversarial behavior is always about power, control, holding it, gaining it, status, authority... When Jesus calls us to love, he's actually calling us to a very different posture. Many of you will be familiar that there are several different words for love in the Greek language. And the word that Jesus chooses here is the one that he often chooses. It's the word agape. And the word agape is a very different kind of love. It is not a, a love that kind of flutters up from the depths of the heart. Like this person is lovable and I love them. That's a wonderful kind of love, not agape love. Agape love is actually a willful, sacrificial act of love. So what Jesus is calling people to is not like, hey, you should learn to like have this butterfly fluttering feeling about your enemies. He's saying you should have a change in posture that responds to power grabs with acts of service. You see this? Now this is crazy. Respond to people who are trying to grab authority or hold authority, even when it demeans or hurts you, with acts of service and loving others. How on earth do we even go about this? Jesus gives us four statements. I tried to read them slowly to let them sink in because they are outrageous commands that he gives us. The first is you should do good to them. Now, this is completely countercultural, isn't it? You don't do good to someone who's doing bad to you. That doesn't make any sense to us as human beings. Yet Jesus says, even when someone mistreats you, even when someone wrongs you, even when someone, let me make it even broader, even when someone acts in a Machiavellian way, you know what I mean when I say that? I never knew what Machiavellian was until enough people said, you're being 
very Machiavellian. I had to look it up and be like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't do that. Machiavellian means like that the, the ends justify the means, right? And so sometimes people do wrong to you even by posing as doing good to you. Does that make sense? Because their purpose in doing it is not to love you. It's to gain power over you. And so what Jesus is saying here is no matter what or why they're doing it, your response should be for their benefit. Now, running through all of this, you're going to hear me kind of try to stand in juxtaposition between responding in love, but also not being a doormat, right? Jesus is not talking about lay down and let people do whatever they want to you. That is not a Christian response. It's actually a weak and non-gospel-centered response. But the choice being that even in any response you make to something that has been done to you, you do it not for your own benefit, but for the good of the person responding to you. And so when you do that, it will change dynamically how you respond, if you respond, when you respond to them. That the whole purpose for your engagement is for their benefit, for their good. Jesus says, hey, if someone mistreats you, do good to them. Crazy. The second thing he tells us is to bless them. Hey, listen, they're going to curse you. You respond to curses with blessing, right? We understand what cursing is, don't we? They're saying demeaning, uh, detrimental, hurtful things. Remember this, the saying we all learned when we were kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, or the biggest lie ever in the history of the world. Why? Because we all know that words hurt worse than sticks and stones. It's why they're our weapon of choice against other people. Jesus knows this, and so why he says, listen, when they come at you with their words, you bless them. Now, fascinating this word bless, isn't it? The word bless is not just saying, oh, God love them. The word bless is actually the Greek word eulogeo. We get our word eulogize. It actually is to speak well of them. Makes it even more outrageous, doesn't it? They come at you with curses, you look for the good in them. They come at you with demeaning and, 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 and hurtful words, and you come at them to see the good and to promote the good and to push them, spur them on towards good. Outrageous what Jesus is calling us to. And then he says, and when they persecute you, you should pray for them, right? When they're grabbing for power and they're acting in their own power to put you down and for their own gain, you should actually call on a far greater power than them, not for their demise, but actually for their gain, right? Pray for them, although it happens in the Psalms sometimes, does not necessarily mean God get rid of them, right? We are allowed to speak our feelings and God processes that with us. But we're actually talking about here the prayer that God is calling us to is a prayer of transformation. That the very thing they're after in a misguided way that God would grant them in an inner transformational way. That they would find security, significance, acceptance not in their actions and in their power but actually in the love of God for them. You see that? 
that we respond to them not for their removal, but to join with them, calling on a higher power for their ultimate transformation. Outrageous. And then, the topper of all toppers, right? It's not the cherry on top because the cherry is a terrible topper, right? Chocolate syrup, caramel sauce, whatever. The topper of all toppers, Jesus says, and when they hit you in the face, turn the other cheek. Now, we've used this verse in many different ways and some of them in unfortunate ways. Uh, Let me just make a few statements. Our purpose is not to dwell here. We need to get to the bigger point. Uh, Turn the other cheek is not a statement for nonviolence, okay? I am not promoting a violence, nor am I promoting a nonviolent theology. Uh, That's the debate to be had in other ways. What I just want you to say is that anyone who has come to a nonviolent conclusion simply on this verse has done so in error. Partly because right before it, Jesus says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So there's something different going on there. I am no warmonger. I'm not calling any of us to war. I think nonviolence is a wonderful path. If you just take this verse in isolation, that's not what it's actually talking about. Why? Well, in many ways, look at what he says. If someone strikes you on the cheek, right? Not if they punch you in the mouth. Not if they pull a gun on you or a knife on you. They strike you in the cheek. And if you look in Matthew's account of it, he says if they strike you in the right cheek. Now, why on earth does he specify the right cheek? Because people would use their right hand. Right hand was the, the main and predominant hand of the day. And to strike someone you're facing on the right cheek meant that you would have to backhand swat them. Now, if you look in the Old Testament law, To hit someone with the back of your hand is actually a far greater fine than to hit them with the front of your hand. Who knows why? Because ultimately, in that culture, it was a far more embarrassing, a far more uh, demeaning and destructive thing to do. This striking someone on the cheek is about embarrassment. It's about putting them down. It's about lowering their status in order to put you up. It is not a, a pugilistic battle where people are slapping each other in the face like a Three Stooges routine, right? But it's the idea of me saying, I'm better than you, and I'm going to show everyone around, boom, backhanded swat to the face. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek, as if to say, do it again. Or some scholars even suggest what he's saying is to take a posture of affection by calling them in for a kiss on the cheek. We won't exactly know. Either way, what is clear in what he's saying is you do not engage in the behavior of the agitator. When they work to demean and to put you down and to embarrass you publicly, you do not return like for like. You offer embrace. And so what's really going on behind the scenes here, if you're willing to offer someone embrace when they are attacking you in that kind of way, what Jesus is really after, something core to his heart, he's calling us to forgive them, right? This is what this statement is all about. It's about forgiveness. Because in no way are you going to turn the other cheek and call them in for embrace unless you have set aside what has just happened. Now, let me just say a few things. We don't have time to belabor the point. Forgiveness is a sermon series, let alone a sermon. 
in and of itself. But there are two things we should say about forgiveness here. The first is that Proverbs very clearly says it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. If you can overlook what has happened to you, you should. That is the first stage of forgiveness. It is not always possible. So do not feel like in a moralistic high moment you need to pull up your bootstraps and just overlook something that you can't because you're actually not dealing with the pride that's within you that's been hurt. Right? You need to be honest about that. But if you can overlook it and simply move to forgiveness, then it's clear the Word of God calls us right into that. If you can't, then you should engage the person, but do so for their good on the basis of prayer in words of blessing that comes out of a spirit of pursuing forgiveness rather than, look what you just did to me. Make a difference? Very different ways. Jesus is not calling us to be Christian doormats. That is nonsense. He's calling us to boldly speak truth, to speak truth to power, to speak truth to those who would come against us, but not for our gain. A very different reality. Do you see it? And so Jesus is calling us to love our neighbor in this way. So if you have been following with me, I'm going to make a guess that you're saying, ha, this is impossible. And I agree with you. Quite frankly, at first read, everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, forget just loving your neighbors, the whole darn thing is impossible. It's almost otherworldly. And yet, the kingdom that Jesus calls us to is an otherworldly kingdom. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically for us this morning, loving your enemies, was never take those four statements and go home and get good at it. That doesn't work. That's a moralistic effort that's trying to earn God's love. Rather, he's saying, can you look and find anywhere where this happens? Is there a family who lives this way? And Jesus points right to it at the end of the section, doesn't he? He says, you'll be merciful, how? Like your father is merciful. The Sermon on the Mount was always meant to push us not to the moralism of the teaching, but to the teacher himself. Jesus was calling us to an ethic that at that moment was impossible, but when his work was complete, would be utterly possible through an otherworldly transformation we call the Spirit of God. Because when on earth does someone do good to those who hate him? And does ever anyone bless those who curse him? And is there ever a, a testimony of someone praying for those who are persecuting him. Is there ever a moment of profound forgiveness that turns the other cheek to be insulted 
again, and you need to look to one central event of the Christian faith. It's the cross of Christ, is it not? The whole purpose of the cross of Christ is not for Jesus to gain some position of power. It's not for him to to up his dignity and societal status level. It's all about those people who are working against them. It's for their good when they're acting in their own power towards him. And he makes a profound statement on the cross. Very simple and short. Do you remember it? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that short statement, he blesses and he prays for those who are diametrically opposed to him because he has forgiven them. And when we come to grips with this, there are some profound truths that will change us if we get the depth of God's love for us. The first is that we were the enemies. I mean, the New Testament makes this clear. You can find it in all different places. I like Colossians 1.21, but you can find it in Romans chapter 5. You can find it in Ephesians chapter 2. And a multitude of other places. While you were still sinners, you were enemies. You were champions of the kingdom of darkness. Paul is telling us, Jesus is telling us in all these places. But God rich in mercy, rich in love, acted for our good while we acted in our own rebellion in power. Don't you see it? When Jesus is telling these people to love their enemies, what he's telling them is he's about to love his enemies. And when we grasp that, it changes our view of ourselves. We are no longer some classic martyr or victim. We actually are the ones, we sang in the song earlier, whose sin held him there until it was accomplished. And when you come to grips with that reality of the brokenness of ourselves, then you begin to marvel in the reality of what God has done for you. Do you hear what he said? He says, be merciful as your father is merciful. In other words, you're in God's family. There's a theological word for this, and it's a simple word that we understand in our culture. It's the word adoption. That someone is brought into a family that was not originally theirs, that they did not grow up in having status to, but they are brought into, and when they're brought into it, they have full access to all the blessings and the love that exists in that family. And what Jesus is saying here is that we are adopted enemies. Isn't it amazing? That we are adopted enemies. Now, I think back to my, to my next-door neighbor, Michael, and think, what would it mean to bring him into my family? And those were childish squabbles that probably were not even meant to hate. But what about a real hardcore enemy? What would it mean to welcome them into your family? This is what God has done for us. And when he does it, he gives us a whole new identity. 
Because he calls us children of God, sons and daughters of God, not just to give us like a title, but to give us an actual identity. Uh, you know, um, um, psychologists, sociologists say that at, that at the core of humanity, at the core of a human being, there are three needs that we long for. We long for, in some connection, we all long for these three things in some kind of equation that is different for each of us. We long for significance. We long for acceptance. And we long for security. And we respond to our enemies because they threaten those three things in us. But if we really are sons and daughters of God, then those three things are firmly established for all of eternity. And therefore, there is no longer a need to demonstrate your superiority. There is no longer an inherent or internal need to to be accepted by everyone around you. There is no longer an internal or inherent need to be secure and keep everything just so, but you can live in the status and the identity that God gives you. Speak truth, but do it in love. Do it for the benefit of others. It enables us to engage with humanity in a whole new way. Why? Because we also see humanity in a whole new way. That they are actually not our enemies. Did you know that? Michael was actually not my enemy. Terrorists who, who would want to do harm to the United States or, or from their perspective, a, a, a colonial power who would want to do power there, they were actually not each other's enemies. The Bible actually tells a very different story that all of humanity is broken, that we actually have much more in common with each other than we have against each other. And if we would see ourselves as adopted enemies, it would allow us to perceive people as awfully similar to us. And even when they're acting in wrong ways to try to achieve the significance and acceptance and security that they long for, We understand what it is like to long for that. But we also know what it is like to have found it. And it changes how we engage them. And we finally come to to the conclusion, like Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6, that this whole idea of enemy is actually no way to speak about humanity. That enemy is actually an otherworldly thing. This otherworldly kingdom we're called to is at battle with an otherworldly kingdom of Satan and his minions and the powers of this world and the flesh that writhes within us. And if we can label the right thing the enemy, then we can fight the right battles. And if we can label the right thing broken humanity, then we can love our enemies. If you are reading the Sermon on the Mount, or if you are reading Jesus' statement to love your enemies, it is necessarily impossible. Can't be done. And yet Jesus calls us to it. Why? Because he promises to all those who have received his love as adopted enemies, the Spirit of God, who is at work transforming us from the inside out. Remember how the Spirit transforms us, John 16, John 14? By continually pulling us back to the teaching of Jesus. 
right? The Spirit of God is preaching the gospel to us constantly if we would only have ears to hear. You want to hate that person, but they're an enemy of God just like you were. How does that change how you engage them? And as you allow this love of God for you to sit deeply within your soul, it changes how you act and behave towards those around you. This is how we love our enemies. So the question then necessarily to you is, who are your enemies? Some of you have significant political enemies. They're in office somewhere. They have no idea who you are, but you hate them, right? What does the gospel have to say about that? Some of you have significant vocational enemies. The person who is brown-nosing all the time, who's twisting things to get the boss's approval, who's stomping you down, who's in your way all the time. Who is that person? Name them in your head. And what does the gospel say about how you act towards them? At some time this week, your kids are going to drive you nuts. Your wife is going to do the wrong thing. Your husband's going to do something stupid. They're going to be a temporary enemy. How does the gospel change how we relate in that moment? Is it important for us to win that battle? Or is it important for us to serve that person? Not as a doormat, but for their benefit as a co-adopted enemy of God. This is what it means to love your enemy. Even the dude who was going 35 in the left-hand lane on the very last part of my trip home, right? As I'm, I'm seriously working through this sermon on my way home, and there he is, and I'm like, ha, not that guy, <laughs> you know? It's everywhere. This is why Jesus teaches about this. It's everyday life. And Jesus calls us to something so outrageous that it could only be accomplished by a God who would do something equally or far more outrageous. And guess what? He did. Can I pray with you?